The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 2nd, 2023. This week, Lawfare editors discussed the recent ruling by a military commission's judge finding the clean team interviews of Abda al-Rahim al-Nashiri inadmissible because they are still tainted by torture. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from September 3rd, 2016, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Michelle Paradis and Bob Loeb to discuss the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals' August 30th, 2016 ruling in al-Nashiri's case denying his petition to dissolve the military commission convened to try him, and affirming the ruling of the district court, which denied al-Nashiri's motion for a preliminary injunction of his trial. In doing so, the D.C. Circuit abstained from ruling on al-Nashiri's claim that the military commission lacks jurisdiction to try him because his alleged war crimes were committed prior to 9-11 and thus took place before the beginning of active hostilities. Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 3rd, 2016. That was Michelle Paradis, a senior attorney in the Department of Defense's Office of the Chief Defense Counsel and counsel for Abdel Rahim al Nashiri. Michelle came on the podcast with Bob Loeb, a partner at Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, and the former acting deputy director of the Civil Division Appellate Staff at the Department of Justice. Along with Benjamin Wittes, Michelle and Bob discussed the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals' recent ruling in the al-Nashiri case. The court denied al-Nashiri's petition for a writ of mandamus to dissolve the military commission convened to try him and affirmed the ruling of the district court, which denied al-Nashiri's motion for a preliminary injunction of his trial by military commission. In doing so, the D.C. Circuit abstained from ruling on al-Nashiri's claim that the military commission lacks jurisdiction to try him because his alleged war crimes were committed prior to 9-11 and thus took place before the beginning of active hostilities. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 186, Geeking Out on al-Nashiri with Michelle Paradis and Bob Loeb. So I want to start, Bob, if we can, just with a... as as neutral a, a, a description of what the court did in, in the latest Nashiri decision and the nature of the dispute on the court that you can give us. Sure, happy to do that. So this was a case argued to the D.C. Circuit back in February where many people were waiting with bated breath to see how this comes out because it affects 
not just this military commission, but perhaps a number of other commissions yet to come. So uh, al-Nashiri is being charged in a military commission for uh, war crimes related to uh, his involvement uh, in the bombing of the Sullivan and the U.S. coal in uh, 2000 um, and the Lindbergh in 2002, all um, predating 9-11, uh, at least the coal uh, and the Sullivan. And one of the prerequisites for the uh, military commissions having uh, jurisdiction over these kind of war crimes uh, in a criminal proceeding for a military crime um, is that the conduct here was uh, took place during armed conflict, which you know, which is a, a, another way of saying took place during a war. But here, this is an arm, arm, a uh, irregular armed conflict. So, Al Nashiri uh, brought an action in district court, federal district court, arguing that the uh, military commission didn't have jurisdiction over him because his actions took place before 9/11, before the uh, enactment of the AUMF, the authorization of the use of military force by Congress, and also he points to the fact that at the time those acts occurred, the president then said these were just acts, criminal acts, we were not at war, um, and that the FBI and not the military was in charge of investigating them. Uh, he made that argument to the district court. The district court refused to rule on the merits of those, um, saying that those kind of challenges had to await uh, a final determination of the military commission and then review by a military appellate court before an Article III federal court got involved. Nashiri then appealed to the D.C. Circuit challenging that, said that this is not an appropriate case for a federal court to abstain getting involved, that this is not uh, a, a, a kind of a regular uh, military uh, court or military commission uh, which should be given the type of deference that sometimes federal courts do in, in the, maybe in the context of a court-martial proceeding. There's a regularized process where the court, the federal courts will back off and not get involved in, until the very end. That's, that's a doctrine called abstention. So the federal, the D.C. Circuit, the appellate court here in a split decision here uh, decides, uh, affirms the decision to abstain, uh, that, that not ruling on the merits of whether he's right or wrong, uh, says that uh, Congress has established a, a system of, a, the, you know, this is not the military commissions that we saw in the Hamden case where the Supreme Court said uh, that it was unlawful, but also as a prerequisite for that, the, the Supreme Court said it's not an appropriate case to abstain because this is just an ad hoc executive branch military commission, not been set up by Congress. It's also, it's unlike uh, the court-martial uh, process. It doesn't involve a military officer. Um, so the D.C. Circuit now says, well, it's we, like uh, in the Hamid case, aren't dealing with a military officer under a court-martial, so the abstention principles there don't apply. But this is very uh, unlike Hamden because now we have Congress in the Military Commission Act has established this military commission, set up parameters, set up the substantive crimes for it, and also has given the Article Three courts a place in that process. Um, and the bottom line there is then Judge Griffiths writing the decision for the court, judge joined by Judge Sentel, um, says that it's appropriate to abstain 
Uh, they also re refused to grant mandamus review, which is an extraordinary writ a court can grant to reach the merits of something early on, saying you only grant such writs in extraordinary cases where the law is very clear. And here, although they, they seem to say there's some sub substance to the arguments being raised by al-Nashiri, they say it's not an open and shut case on the merits. Uh, Judge Tatel writes a, a somewhat lengthy uh, dissent uh, in this case, saying it's not appropriate uh, um, to abstain here, that really the, you know, they, he was, I think, polite to Judge Griffith, saying this, he did a good job in trying to explain why the whole Hamdan analysis didn't apply here. But Judge Tatel really uh, disagrees and says the abstention doctrines that we're relying here are really about um, about the military justice system as applied to military officers and keeping um, order in that system. And those principles just don't apply in this context where you bring it against a third party here, uh, such as al-Nashiri. And um, uh, Judge Tatel, more, I think more interesting to me, goes on to say, even when there's abstention, there can be exceptions where there's extraordinary harm or good reasons not to abstain. And here, a Nashiri would be, if he's right on the merits, is, is basically uh, being required to face a trial uh, which has no jurisdiction or authority over him. And there's a harm in forcing him just through this proceeding by itself. You know, and it, he goes on to say it's not that there's ordinarily a harm requiring a person to go through that kind of process. But here he cites uh, the fact of the abuse of al-Nashiri during his early detention, during his interrogation, um, citing a number of, uh, of, of government documents and a number of statements by al-Nashiri, which have now been un uh, unclassified about the nature of his treatment and suggests that, you know, given the trauma that he's already uh, been exposed to, that requiring him to, to sit through this entire process uh, when there's really no authority over it is, is to, to sort of rub salt in the wounds created by, uh, by the government. Uh, he doesn't reach the second mandamus issue and doesn't opine on whether how clear cut, cut it is. Okay, so Michelle, here's I'd like to start with a uh, you know a, the question of why it is important to you and your client to have this jurisdictional question resolved ex ante rather than in the context of an adjudicated case. Why do you care? Um, I think we care in for, for two main reasons. I think there are other reasons to care that other people should care, but the two reasons that we care are, one, you know, this is not a process that lends itself to predictability and regularity or promptness, for that matter. Uh, Al-Nashiri was first charged in, before a military commission in 2008. Um, we are now at the eight-year mark of military commission proceedings against him in Guantanamo, that followed four years of, I'll, I'll say the word, of torture uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency in the rendition, detention, and interrogation program. And so from al-Nashiri's perspective, he has already been in U.S. custody for 14 years. Most of that has been under some of the most exacting and brutal conditions one can imagine. And so continuing on and having just this, this overhang of uncertainty for the foreseeable future, what's likely to be another 10 years, um, is a source of enormous stress for him, a source of enormous pain, because from al-Nashiri's standpoint, there is no difference between his 
2006, we think of it as, at the, as the time when the RDI program was closed down. But he, he doesn't really know that. He, he, Guantanamo was a black site. It was a black site where he was held. It was a black site where he was tortured. And so he remains in a black site, in a proceeding whose every movement and operation apparently appears designed to kill him. And so going through that process um, does look to him, and I think reasonably, just like the next phase of the RDI program. And so if we can spare him that, I think just at a human level, um, that's an important thing to do. But hang on, I'm yeah. trying, l l l let me ask you about sort of what the null hypothesis is. Because, you know, the oddity of, of what you're requesting here is that the current proceedings, you're asking that the current proceedings stop, right? You're not asking that he be removed from Guantanamo. You're not asking... So I, I'm trying, and I was actually unable to tell from Judge Tatel's opinion mm. what exactly, how exactly your prevailing, had you prevailed in this case, stops the harm that you're alleging. He, if, if, if you win and you mm. get the preliminary injunction, uh, he's still at Guantanamo. He's still in the black site, as uh, as he sees it. He's still subject to uh, something that's actually closer to the RDI program than the, a, a military commission, which is indefinite detention by you know a government that he does not acknowledge as sovereign. Um, and uh, and there's actually a law that prevents him from being brought to the United States for trial. Hmm. So my, my question is, had you prevailed here, doesn't he suffer all the same harms that you claim that he's suffering uh, as a result of this commission proceeding? No, actually. And, and let me actually get to the second point, because I think it might, it'll answer at least a part of your question. And that is, he is under indictment presently in the Southern District of New York on capital charges relating to the bombing of the USS Cole. And so he does face, in addition to just the psychic harms of going through capital prosecution in a black site, he actually faces retrial if he prevails on this single issue 10 years from now. He faces retrial in essentially 2025 in the Southern District of New York. Now you say, well, there's a ban on moving Guantanamo detainees to the United States. There is right now. That's that's debated and renewed annually. Will we still have that ban in 10 years? I, I kind of hope not. I think, I think President Trump or Clinton probably hopes not, too, because, the pre, you know, uh, certainly President Obama has taken the position that it unduly constrains uh, his authority to make judgments about how to deal with detainees in the war on terror. So, so we're not even dealing here with... Uh, a situation where, well, it's just one prosecution. If he guts it out, he'll be fine at the end. This is a prosecution where if he guts it out and prevails on the very issue the court didn't address here, he gets tried again in a capital trial, but this time in a federal court, in an indictment that's been pending since 2002. So, I, so that's a really real harm, A, just psychically, but I think also tactically, because we don't know for sure. You, you gave our odds 50-50, I think, in your blog post on prevailing on this issue. But even if it's a 50-50 shot, we still have to go all out on absolutely uh, everything and put on a proper capital defense because that's our obligation as attorneys, especially in a capital case. So I think that's a harm that's very unique. Um, second, I would just momentarily, 
push against your your assumption that he doesn't recognize the sovereignty of the United States and that if he's sort of remanded to uh, uh, Camp 7 without these charges that his life will sort of continue on in perpetuity as a, an unlawful enemy combatant or whatever we call them now. Um, I, we obviously, for the purposes of this case, had to assume all the allegations against him were true. Um, but having worked on this case for a pretty long period of time now, um, I can say that he certainly has factual defenses that have nothing to do with um, these legal defenses that we raised um, that could very well warrant at least a meaningful opportunity to be heard in either habeas corpus or the PRBs. Um, he is, without getting into attorney-client stuff and everything he says to me is classified anyway, um, but without getting into that, he is just not like a lot of the other detainees, including some of the ones I've represented, um, in terms of his personality, his humanity, his uh, attitude on life, and his politics. Um, and and I can, I'll say that much, because I, don't, I, I, I can't go too much into detail, and it's probably not that interesting. Um, the, the third and final piece that I would say, which is what makes a military commission trial much more traumatic and much more of the next phase of the RDI program, um, than even a federal capital trial would be, is uh, the unique nature of the military commission process in Guantanamo. For one thing, the rules are always in this constant state of flux and uncertainty. As the, as the judge in the 9-11 case said, this is a system in which uncertainty is the norm and the rules appear random and indiscriminate. And if you have spent the past decade or 14 years of your life in a state of compulsory learned helplessness, where the objective was to make you 100% uncertain about every, that, that all of your rights are uncertain. And that, is, that was ultimately the, purpose, the express purpose of the RDI program. That, a, a military trial, a capital trial which is, in which he is on trial for his life, um, is very much a, uh, just a continuation of that very specific harm that would not exist in federal court. And I would say one more thing about the rules. There are other things I could say, but there's one more thing about the rules that I think is the most important. And that is, in a federal court, evidence derived from torture is just inadmissible. And yes, there's something in the statute that says that applies in military commissions too. But the way the rules are written, particularly the, ways are, the way the rules are written in combination with the hearsay rules, is that unless some, a statement was taken under the moment of torture, it is arguably admissible as long as the government can make a case of voluntariness. So in Guantanamo, this military commission, probably not this year, probably not next year, but maybe in 2018 when we start getting to the, the substantive meat of this case, um, we are going to have a prolonged adversarial hearing on his torture where we're going to describe and have to describe day in and day out the, the most traumatic and traumatizing events of his life in an adversarial setting where the government has to say, no, that didn't happen, no, he's exaggerating. And for someone who survived, who, someone who has undergone torture like this, which is, is really shocking and extraordinary, even on its own terms, that is a, you know, I mean, that is, you know, people talk about trigger warnings in college campuses. That is a triggering event to have to relive your torture in the context of a criminal trial where the, the issue is not your victimization, as it would be in any ordinary trial where torture was an issue, but whether or not your statements to interrogators can be admitted against you and where your torture is being disbelieved by, by the government that's attempting to kill you. Um, and so I think those are, you know, 
people can disagree and people have different fortitude, but I think all three of those are real and practical harms to him that really did put a premium on us as people who represent him and do have to not only look out for his particularized legal rights, but also um, you know, his broader mental health and his ability, you know, his, his humanity. Um, to take this issue seriously, to, to push it as hard as we could ahead of time, because um, having a, what is in essence a mock trial, a mock capital trial, is a, a damaging and traumatizing event that um, should not be imposed on someone like him, where the government has already tortured him, um, gratuitously. And, and that's, that was really our point. So I want to break this into two discrete uh, conversations. The f let's, let's talk about the, the, the councilman deference uh, abstention question. And then let's come back to the underlying question of the, uh, uh, you know, of, of whether, whether whenever you litigate this question, it's going to trigger, uh, y you know, a, a serious jurisdictional uh, uh, f problem for the, uh, for the military commission. So, Bob, you wrote in Lawfare that you were sympathetic to the majority's sense that this should this question, uh, despite everything that Michelle just said, should wait until uh, there is a conviction and um, uh, to be litigated. And so my question is, you know, both Steve Vladek and I raised with different degrees of certainty and intensity the question of why it is desirable to abstain when the result of that is that you go through a whole capital case, you go through a whole appellate process, all the while knowing that there's some significant chance that the result of that is that you never had jurisdiction to do the first thing, the first trial in the first place. And my question is, I know these are supposed to be independent variables, you know, what the, you know, but I look at it and say it's a little crazy for them to be entirely independent variables if you think that Michelle might really plausibly prevail on the jurisdictional question. And so my question is, why, why is this a desirable order of operations, given, given the possibility that the end result is just a do-over? So let me start by not disagreeing with you on the policy perspective. I think Steve Vladek made a powerful case for why unlike the court-martial system, which is regularized and established, that this is, system is still finding its legs and, and uh, as Michelle said, um, the rules seem to be changing every day and the time lags, et cetera. It, it's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel exactly when this is gonna come out. So for many policy reasons, you'd wanna just sort of short circuit it if in fact there's no uh, jurisdiction, and the far more interesting and fundamental question is, when did the war begin, and is this an appropriate use of power? So, and as a policy matter, if you were just as, you know, the all-powerful ruler, you could say that makes more sense to me to, to allow this kind of interlocutory review by the appellate courts. To me, and um, Judge Griffith approached it sort of under the councilman case, they had a number of factors. What did we look at when Hamden, they looked at a number of factors as to whether courts should get involved or not. 
And I, I, I think on, on those, he didn't make the most persuasive case as to that, but you can make, and I think Judge Tatel admitted that it was a sort of a novel situation, unclear as a matter of just how those, those particular principles uh, play out, and I can walk through those. To me, um, it's sort of apples and oranges. A councilman's dealing a situation uh, with the court martial system. You know, it's set up by Congress, but there's no particular uh, role for the Article Three court to come into it. Uh, and then in Hamden, we deal with a uh, ad hoc military commission, again, where there's no clear role for the uh, Article Three courts to come into it, although the government argued that it fell into a certain boxes with the court marshals, but the court disagreed. I, I see this as a completely different animal where it's a matter of just of deference. It's one thing for the courts to make up the rules and make these policy determinations where Congress is silent, um, but where Congress is set up, particularly the military commission system, knowing this was going to be an issue, um, you, you had to have a person be an enemy combatant. You had to have the, be part of um, the hostilities for the conduct to be part of it, and set up a review system within the military commissions, and then Article Three review, and then limited that Article Three review um, in specific ways in the statute. I, I think in this context, just from my perspective is a matter of, of, of having rule of law and, and letting Congress make policy decisions um, that the courts need to defer to that congressional judgment. And I think ultimately um, that's where Judge Griffith ends up and that's his strongest trump card. And I, I, I do agree with that. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I wanna say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lawfare. So, so what's wrong with that? That like, despite all the, you know, all the verbiage that what this really comes down to, and this was actually, I thought Judge Griffith did not make the strongest case on this that he could have. Um, 
there's a pretty clearly specified procedure that Congress laid out in an elaborated statutory scheme that says exactly in what order uh, appellate review is supposed to take place and that doesn't contemplate, despite having been passed in response to Hamdan, which you know, mm. jettisoned exactly this order in exactly the way that you're describing it. It doesn't have the, and by the way, Hamdan provision that allows the sort of interlocutory appellate review that you're seeking. So, like, what's the case here for saying basically to heck with the order of operations as Congress <laughs> described it? And why shouldn't, I mean, if I had written Judge Griffith's opinion, it might have been much shorter and it might have just said, hey, you know, this is what the the scheme Congress laid out, tough noogies. Mm. Um, so what's wrong with the tough noogies <laughs> the argument? Tough noogies argument. Okay. <laughs> um, so I have a, uh, a sort of more legal pedantic reason, which I hope would, which I hoped at the time would satisfy Judge Griffith. Um, and then also the, the um, sort of more of an equitable ground, I guess. Um, and so I'll start with the equitable ground because at the end of the day, abstention is an equitable doctrine, just as habeas corpus is an equitable remedy. And so, so to the extent um, making co- the kind of policy judgments uh, that, that you, you, know, you were uncomfortable with um, is ordinarily not something we want judges to do. In the context of equity, that is actually what we're asking judges to do. We're, we're, making, we're asking judges to make a balancing of, of harms. And, and I think the harms um, are not, again, just to Nishiri, as I was talking about, but also to the public. Um, when this case is ultimately before the circuit again in probably close to a decade, um, you know, the, the, the family members of the victims are going to be a lot older. Many of them will probably have passed on. Um, the, the, the question about whether or not we were at war is going to be deferred for 25 years after the ostensible beginning of that war. Um, the, these, are, these are arguably questions of policy, but they're questions of legal policy that judges do take into account and should take into account. Um, and, and I think just in, then sort of then the technical answer, um, which is probably more legal, um, is, first of all, this is actually a case a lot like Hamdan, where the question is not just constitutional. We're not just complaining about what the military commission or Congress or the president are doing. Um, we're actually seeking to enforce a limit that Congress put. Section, the, 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 the section um, 950, um, 950 PC that we're that we were raising says uh, an offense is only triable if it occurred in the context of and was associated with hostilities. And so our problem in that respect isn't with Congress. We're, we're attempting to enforce the limits Congress has imposed on the chief prosecutor and the kinds of charges um, he can bring. And that's where I do come back to the question of habeas corpus. This, this is a role that habeas corpus played in Hamdan and played in Ex parte Kieran. Um, there was there were statutes. Uh, the, there was the Articles of War in Kieran. There was the court, the UCMJ in, in Hamdan. And the question was, are the statutes being followed? And that's a that's a traditional use of habeas corpus. All right. So it seems to me that you guys are much further apart on the question of the current the proper application of the relationship between abstention and the Military Commissions Act than you are on the the policy question of like what should what should in an ideal world happen here and so my reaction after reading the the, the case was the right answer here is for congress to relax the restriction on uh 
bringing people to the United States for, for, for trial and for the executive branch to make a very hard-headed set of decisions about whether it makes more sense in the first instance to try Nashiri under, I had for actually forgotten that there was a pending indictment against him in New York, mm. but you know, to try him uh, in New York under that indictment or to uh, proceed in the current case given the jurisdictional uh, uh, uncertainty. And so my question, to both of you is, you know, g given that the law is now in a different place than it was two years ago with respect to what happens absent congressional intervention, why isn't the right answer to this question for, you know, that we should, we should take a hard look at that transfer restriction in order to free us up to ask the question whether the military commission is really in the government's best interest here and really in the defendant's best interest to the extent that anybody but Michelle cares deeply about, about this particular defendant's best interest. His mother loves him. I mean, uh, I think everybody, I mean, this administration certainly would want to be having these as uh, criminal trials in New York or in Eastern District of Virginia and early on in its the Obama term uh, though that uh, ability was taken away by statute, which is, you know, raises also just sort of uh, questions of infringement on, on executive power and prosecutorial power. They're being forced to move ahead with these in, in, in Guantanamo, which has been difficult for, for both sides um, and, 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 and also creating a new structure from scratch, as we've seen on the habeas detainee side, um, and even more so on the uh, military commission side has been a arduous and painful process. So I think you're not going to find any opponents in this room probably of, of opening that up. I, on the question of the threshold issues, I think you could also have more modestly just suggest um, I mean, it could be the Congress sees the light and allows the president to do what he wants on, uh, on bringing criminal charges. You could more modestly suggest as well maybe the issues could be certified by the military commission or the government itself could agree to have specific issues certified to short circuit the matter, which makes, what makes me uncomfortable is there, this is not the only threshold issue. For example, under 948C, there are threshold issue, you can't be tried before a military commission unless in fact you are an alien, unprivileged enemy a belligerent, which, you know, are you an enemy combatant or not? And you have the, um, those decisions which are challenged on habeas. One could make an argument um, as the defendant's counsel, that that too needs to be uh, litigated fully and, and raised uh, before the Article Three court before he's subjected to this um, criminal trial. So I, I, it's hard to, these are all kind of fact-bound issues, and it's hard to start, start picking one out that, that meets the standards for uh, getting abstention, uh, getting around abstention to allow the federal circuit, the D.C. circuit to get involved before Congress said it should. So, Bob, you 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 said there's no there's no real disagreement that these things would be better litigated at this point in federal court. If my if memory serves, Nashiri was actually the case that Holder, even before the transfer restrictions announced, was the reason they were going back to Congress to redo the Military Commissions Act because the administration wanted to proceed in a military commission. Are you, 
First of all, Michelle, is that right? I think Holder said that along with um, four other cases after. This was when he announced the... I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. And it was um, when he announced the transfer of the 9-11 uh, suspects to New York. He anno- no- right, he announced that the... Yeah, mil- so this was after the Military Commissions Act had actually been gone through again. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, but, but, but I guess my question is... I mean, you, you you represented the government in a lot of cases like this one. You know, a lot of Guantanamo cases. Are you are you convinced that if the government had to, had the had the latitude to zero base this question now, that Nashiri would be in New York or the Eastern District of Virginia and not at a, in Guantanamo? Um, I I think so. I, I think the issue back then and, and uh, was more just dealing with the classified information. Mm-hmm. And we're now 10 years later, and a lot more information has been declassified, and there's also more experience in working with counsel with classified information. And I, I think they, there was a belief at the time, and particularly among the intelligence agencies, about the ability and the danger that classified information would have to be disclosed and publicly disclosed in the criminal process in, in Article Three court. I think today there's been much more disclosure, much more declassified, that it probably is not the same issue that it was back then, but that's my my speculation. Okay, so let's turn to the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the question of, okay, you, you go through this whole process uh, either because you want to do it in a military commission um, or because you have to because you can't move the guy to New York. Uh, and then either before or after, apparently it's going to be after, Michelle, you get to argue to the D.C. <laughs> Circuit that act, you know, what you in this case had to argue sort of in, in the mandamus context, um, which is that this military commission has no authority to try my guy for pre-9-11 conduct, conduct when every U.S. government official was insisting that this isn't a war and who's ever in the Bob Loeb, for Bob Loeb's former role at that point will be arguing that actually we retroactively decide when the armed conflict started based on a kind of totality of the circumstances uh, test. Um, so my question is, I, I mean, I, I won't ask you how confident you are that you ultimately prevail on that because no lawyer is going to sit here and say not at all confident. Um, but, um, but what I will ask is um, you have now litigated this question in front of the military com- commission, in front of the district court, and in front of the D.C. Circuit. I don't know if you've ever talked about it to the CMCR. But, I don't think so, yeah. um, and so my question is, what is the closest any court has come to the merits of that jurisdictional question? Well, uh, it's a great question. Um, none. And that's, I think, the single most frustrating aspect of this case. So when we raised it in the military commission, uh, Judge Pohl at the time decided that simply charging al-Nashiri was, um, in essence, good enough for government work to overcome any jurisdictional hurdle. So simply alleging hostilities in the charges was good enough for government work, and that the members ultimately will decide whether or not a war was 
there, there was a war, uh, I guess, under the totality of the circumstances. Um, the district court punted on uh, councilman abstention very, very summarily, actually. And the circuit did as well. I think the circuit's, so maybe the circuit is the closest to at least air both of the arguments in an opinion without making any judgment about which one um, is right or closer to the truth. And I think that, to me, that's the most frustrating part, is that it's a very substantial question. Um, and I don't say substantial because we're right, necessarily, although we are. Uh, but it's a substantial question because it's a very important question. There is law there. There's a way of analyzing this question. And, you know, did the war on terrorism begin, you know, people have often criticized it as a war without end, but is it also a war without beginning? And that's a, that's a question the courts do and will ultimately have to decide. And the fact that at every turn, including in the military commission, that the answer has been to punt. Um, I have to say is it's frustrating as a lawyer, but it's also just frustrating as uh, as an, a citizen who cares about the law and thinks a lot about the law, um, because these are really important questions, and I just uh, kind of envy you know, the, I, I envy other certain countries like Israel, for example, where their courts actually deal with these questions head on um, and unabashedly. Um, England has a, had a pretty good track record about doing that as well. You may not like the results all the time, but the courts don't shy away from hard questions in the context of their own wars on terror in the same way our courts have, not just on this issue, but a number of other issues. Um, and so I think that's the most frustrating piece of it. But the closest is probably this airing of the arguments that we got by the D.C. Circuit. So, Bob, you... Um I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your sense of the merits of this question. I look at it and I say, I actually, I, I in, as, as Michelle noted in my little post about this, I, I, I sort of assessed it as having a 50-50 could kind of go either way sort of uh, way. And I can genuinely argue it to myself uh, in, in either direction. Um, when you look at it, do you have a strong sense of where you think the courts will ultimately come out on it, or do you just think it's a jump ball? I think it's more likely the courts are going to defer to the government uh, on, on, on their arguments about when it began. This not only touches on this on the Shiri, but also on the scope of the hostilities writ large is for, for a long period of time, they, the, the, uh, the hostilities has not just been considered Afghanistan. They've also uh, included Yemen. And wh why Yemen? Um, in part because of the coal bombing there. That, uh, that, and if you look at some of the OLC decisions uh, regarding activities um, and, 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 and people being um, focused upon in Yemen, um, they all sort of rely on, on activities in Yemen, including pre-9-11 uh, activities and the coal bombing. So I think it's hard, it would be hard for the courts to walk away from that and to say that they're actually all the hostilities weren't post-9-11 and were really all in Afghanistan, um, although one could make a sound argument that that's the, the, right, the right answer. Um, so, you know, I think on one hand, uh, Michelle's made a strong case here that you have to look at what the presidents and, the, and Congress said at the time and that this was considered a crime and not a, an act of war. On the other hand, you, you know, I think that 
sort of puts a, a gloss on things that, that now years later you have to realize the real situation. After if it was after Pearl Harbor, we said that was a criminal act by Japan, and when we're not at war with them, but that was that was we're going to make them pay reparations to us and 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 um, and, and bring them to uh, some you know world court um, uh, and and hold them responsible. And then they attack more U.S. ships here and more ship U.S. bases there. And we go, you know what? We're actually at war with them, and we've just been stupid this entire time. I think that's actually sort of the government's argument is that, you know, we didn't, you know, we kind of had blinders on. We were, we were in, a, in an armed conflict, but only one of us was sort of actively fighting it. Mm-hmm. And, and now we are, you know, and the AUMF, AUMF officially uh, recognized that. Um, and on the other side, you know, part of the government's argument throughout this litigation and detention, all that has been deference to Congress and the AUMF and, you know, adhere to the words of the AUMF. And AUMF talks about 9-11 and, and, and specifies that that's where things uh, began. It does note, the, in, in, you know, the coal bombing and all that. But it, it, if Congress wanted to dial back the, um, the date of hostilities, it could have done that as well. So I, I agree with you. It's a, it's a close case. But I think at the end of the day, um, it'd be hard pressed for you know the courts to to second guess the uh, the executive on this on this argument, um, even if it differs from what they said at the time. Yeah, so I you know I mean I I I think you and I in a doctrinal way are actually very close on what the answer should be that it is actually that 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 this totality of the circumstances argument that the government's been making that we look at it as a question of fact for a, a jury or a military jury to decide is pretty, at a minimum, unprecedented, um, if, not un, if not so unusual as to be unconstitutional. Um, we, you know, the, the political branches are the political branches in, in the area of war um, because we look to Congress and the president to make those hard calls. And so to take, to take your World War II analogy, um, there was the Japanese bombing of the USS Panay in the Yangtze River in uh, 19, I want to say, 38, and they sank one of our ships, and we've never said, oh, well, actually, hostilities with Japan began four years earlier, uh, four years earlier than Pearl Harbor. Why? Well, I think it's because Pearl Harbor is the date, like 9-11, that lives in infamy. We had the president of the United States um, go before Congress after 9-11, after Pearl Harbor, and say, yeah, uh, th- this is the moment. We we are now at war. The the nation must mobilize for that, and that has all sorts of consequences up and down the legal system. Everything from statutes of limitations in fraud cases, all the way up to military tribunals and the ability to kill American citizens overseas. And so, I think where I come down, and, which, and it sort of thankfully marries with the position we've taken in this case, is that we have one president at a time, we have one Congress at a time, and we look to them to determine whether or not the events in the world have thrust us into this, this secondary legal regime that is the law of war. Uh, let me, as a matter of deference to Congress, the one thing that uh, I think Judge Griffith pointed to, which was fairly strong, was that in the Military Commissions Act itself, it speaks to uh, jurisdiction over conduct before, on, or after September 11, 2001, which shows that Congress there, at least in creating the military commissions, uh, understood there was going to be some pre-9-11 conduct um, that was going to be swept in as far as war crimes under the military commissions. And given that al-Qaeda declared war years earlier, 
uh, it makes sense that Congress was thinking about things like the coal attack when it did that. So I want to throw out one one idea for you both to to uh, uh, reflect on or bounce off uh, or tell me why I'm wrong, and then then we can wrap up. So my my I, question is: first of all, on the government's position on this strikes me as it almost has to be wrong because leaving a court's jurisdiction to the trier of fact to to the extent that the trier of fact is a jury uh, or in this case members of the commission I can't think of a single example of a place where the court's jurisdiction is left to, to as, as a as a as a matter of factual finding of of, of the ultimate deci decider of fact. But conversely, I say, well, the political branches say all kinds of things. And normally, in when we're looking at the question of whether an armed conflict exists, there's actually an international law definition of an armed conflict. The, you know, it looks to, you know, duration, intensity, uh, you know, scope and magnitude of, 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 of hostilities. So why isn't the answer to this question uh, to evaluate from an international law point of view whether, in fact, the conditions at the time of the coal bombing did or did not meet the international law definition of an armed conflict and treat that as a threshold jurisdictional question that is not about, as you would argue, the, um, the uh, statements of the political branches, which it could turn out to be uh, blinded or, or, but similarly, not, uh, don't, doesn't require the, the ultimate discretion of a bunch of jurors. Uh, on your point about that there's these threshold things, questions shouldn't be factual questions that go uh, to the military commission to decide itself. I mean, there are often going to be factual issues, even in a court-martial, as to whether some crime was, uh, you know, related to the military and that's um, and military conduct such that it's appropriate before a, a court-martial. But you're, you're right, this is a more fundamental question as to when the war began. And I, I raised the point in my, my, my post the other day, it could be the government would just be better off not having a totality approach from the commission determining it and not having it from an international law perspective where a judge is, an Article Three judge is going to decide, looking at his understanding of uh, the restatement and what law professors have said is when armed conflict should begin, and instead embrace the notion that this is a political, when a war begins and when a war ends is a is a political fact and, and is not subject to court review at all. Um, and that we, we know that the Supreme Court has said as to when arm, an armed conflict, conflict is over, that the courts actually um, don't have a role, that it's a, considered a political question that the courts can't review. And one, I think, can sensibly take the same position, and from the executive authority standpoint, may want to take such a position to say that really, whether it's an armed conflict has begun or not, comes to Congress declaring with AUMF that it's begun, or the president saying that we're at war. Um, and it, that's a political statement, and, and that's a contemporaneous one, not a, a, a historical one 20 years later. Um, and then that doesn't leave it to the uh, foibles of what an Article Three judge thinks 
um, to, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years later, and also recognizes the it should be an executive determination, which is, should be due deference by uh, the judiciary. So I would take it a step further. I don't think it should be part of a fact finding, and I don't think it should be something that an Article Three judge. It should be a executive determination um, that's been made by the president. And then, then the good question is: Is it the president now, or is it the president contemporaneously? And then I think that's where you go to question whether it's a coin flip on wh on which president you're going to defer to. Mm. Yeah, I I think we're unfortunately in violent agreement about that um, because it is it's a question where you need clarity and you want political accountability. Uh, if the president makes the wrong call about there being a war or not, we should be able to vote him or his party or his his heir apparent out of office. Uh, in, in in same thing with the Congress. If if we think Congress has let the AUMF run on too long. Um, we should be able to vote them out of Congress on that basis. And if we think that Congress is not taking uh, full accountability um, and uh, responsibility for things like the war uh, in Syria um, or U.S. activities against ISIS, uh, we should be able to vote them out on that basis and say, look, we need to have much more uh, clarity about when and where the United States is at war because it's so consequential. Um, and so, yeah, I... You, I, I tend to be in violent agreement with you. I think applying, inter I think international law standards are, are relevant and interesting and from an international law perspective, but when it comes to how the Constitution allocates the power of the Commander-in-Chief and the power of the Congress to declare war, um, I think as a constitutional matter, it, it, it makes sense both textually but also democratically to make those political decisions because they're so fundamentally political and it can often be a very, very close call. Uh, yeah, one thing that Al Nashiri's this panel decision may not be the final word on the abstention or on this point on mandamus as to the as to how close a question this is. Uh, this the D.C. Circuit, since I left Department of Justice three and a half plus years ago, has uh, undergone a infusion of liberal judges, uh, which really makes it a very different court. And we have here. Uh, a, a conservative majority uh, ruling on, on abstention in a way that um, that has a lot of holes as to its rationale, which some of them were poked uh, by Judge Tatel. And Judge Tatel does uh, come down very hard on the abuse, uh, torture issue, and, and, and sort of raising that as an additional reason why you have to have review of this issue now and not later. And the fact also that the majority doesn't even make a very strong, convincing case about on the when hostilities began issue, too, uh, just makes this a very important and very interesting case um, that the D.C. Circuit could decide to hear in bank. So right now there's a, a period of 45 days, I think, um, to, to petition to the court that they can sit, a full court and all the active judges uh, can sit to, uh, to hear the case. And given its current makeup, there may be a... Um, you know, if you would make a petition for that three or four years ago, it would have gone nowhere. Today, um, there's a, uh, there may be uh, a desire in that court to actually get more involved in some Guantanamo cases and to confront the issues of torture, confront the issues of the authority of the military commission. Mm -hmm. On that forward-looking note, we will, we will end. Uh, thank you both for joining us, and uh, I, I have a feeling we're just going to have a lot of opportunities to come back to both this and other such cases. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who does her best to be charitable, even to her worst enemies. His mother loves him. And as always, 
Please spread the word and promote the Lawfare podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. This week, we're also celebrating Lawfare's sixth birthday. If you enjoy this podcast and like what we do, please consider giving us a donation. Details are on our website, lawfareblog.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.